We are going to be in Matthew chapter 11. For those of you who are familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, you know the Gospel of Matthew is pretty long. Chapter 11 is rather long, and we are going to do the whole chapter, but don't be, <laughs> Brandon's excited, don't be worried. We're not going to be here until uh, 1 o'clock going through the chapter 11 of Matthew. Um, we're going to do a 30,000-foot view, all right? And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so if you're confused of uh, where the tall, uh, bald guy is, I'm obviously not him, but uh, you have me this morning. All right, so Matthew chapter 11 is where we'll be camping out in God's Word today. And as we get ready to dive into this chapter, how many of you, by a show of hands, an actual show of hands, would say that you have at times doubted your faith or even maybe currently doubting your faith? All right, this is a safe place to raise your hand for that. All right. Yeah, some of you who didn't raise your hand, you, if you haven't experienced that, at some point you most likely will, or you're just lying this morning when we can have a conversation about that later, because this is church. But here's the thing about doubting what we believe, about doubting sometimes, doubting God's goodness, and even doubting whether or not all of this, meaning everything that we believe, everything that we hold dear as followers of Jesus, that maybe it might not be true. And that's completely and totally natural for us to do. And here's the reality. At this point in time, we all live in an age and a culture that has become increasingly secular. You know, some of that is obvious here in the United States, but for some of us that went on the, the go time trip to Manchester, we really saw that in England where it has become a secular culture. And whether we're here in the United States, in Virginia, or West Virginia where I live, or you're across the pond in England, we are all increasingly being told to doubt our beliefs and to believe our doubts. But living in a society that says that it doesn't place a high value on belief, whether Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or, or just general spirituality, all of us... Every single one of us believe in something, even those who wouldn't consider themselves to be particularly religious or spiritual. Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith talks about the phenomenon this way. He says, do not equate a secular society to a society of unbelief. Instead, a secular society is one in which we all experience the contestability of our beliefs. What that feels like is to live in a society in which, on your street, you know that there are people who don't believe what you believe, and they're good people, and they're smart people, and you realize that what you believe can't be taken for the default of society. Every believer in a secular age is going to experience what theologians call cross-pressure, where we're going to feel tugged and pulled and pressured by alternative rival stories of who we are and what we're here for. And so the reality for us in that isn't so much if you believe in something is actually what you are going to believe. And in that belief, no matter how strongly held, it's natural and even good at times to doubt and question those beliefs. I know for me, about 15 years ago, I went through a period of really doubting my faith and what I truly believed as a follower of Jesus. 
Some of that was coming from outside of the church, coming from people who weren't followers of Christ. But even some of that was coming from my fellow followers of Christ, fellow believers, my brothers and sisters, who were challenging me on the things that I believed and whether or not those things were true and having me dig into some deeper theological truths. And what I I realized at this time, and I'm sure this is true of all of us in here to some extent or another, what I realized in that moment was there are a lot of things that I believed about Jesus that I could recite back to you. I knew them up here, but I didn't know them in here. I didn't even understand them really fully. It wasn't until I began to doubt my beliefs, really dig into what I believed, that I began to see the full beauty and glory and majesty of who Christ is and what he's done for me. So in this doubt and exploration, I had to ask myself two questions. Number one was, why am I doubting what I believe? And number two, if I need to doubt some of my doubts. In the very same vein as as those questions that I had to ask myself, this is the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning as we explore this passage of Scripture. It's in our doubting, how do we cultivate faith in an age begging for us to follow anything but Christ? That's a question we need to be asking ourselves this morning. And so in this text that we're going to be looking at in Matthew chapter 11, what I hope really comes across today, the the big idea of today's message is that Jesus is the only answer and rest for the weary and the doubting. And this place of doubt is where we actually start out today's text, right? This place of doubt is where we find John the Baptist, who Jesus called the greatest man who ever lived. Now, John was being held in prison by Herod and had gotten himself into trouble there by regularly and publicly calling out Herod for his sins. And not only that, John wasn't particularly liked by the ruling religious figures of the day. So it was really easy for Herod to just say, hey, you're going to jail. So now John, the one who who leapt in his mother's womb over Jesus being nearby when Mary visited Elizabeth, John's mother, this is the same John who prophesied in the wilderness about the coming Messiah, the John that actually baptized Jesus and heard the audible voice of God proclaiming that this is my son for whom I am well pleased. The same John whose own disciples went off to follow Jesus and simply responded with, I must decrease so he must increase. This is the same John who, more than anyone else at the time, should have been completely and utterly convinced of Jesus being the Messiah. And as we see here in the beginning of chapter 1, he's now having doubts. Matthew writes, starting in verse 2, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? You see, the prevailing wisdom of this day is that the Messiah would be this military and political leader who would come in and wipe out the Roman oppressors, usher in this new exodus for his people, and bring the fullness of God's kingdom there and then. But that's not exactly what Jesus did. And because of this unmet expectation about who Jesus was, John begins 
to doubt. But look how Jesus responds to this question. He doesn't condemn John or proclaim him to be not a true believer in the doubt. Jesus instead just responds with truth. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And here's the the thing, the reality of Jesus' response to John. John already knew all that. Jesus didn't respond with something that Jesus that, that Jesus didn't respond to John with something that John didn't know. John already knew that Jesus had done those things. It says that the question from John was coming when he heard about the deeds of the Messiah. John already knew it. He's having a crisis of faith because of his circumstances and unmet expectations about Jesus and what he's there to do. But what Jesus was reminding John of in this response was an Old Testament reference from the prophet Isaiah and talking about the coming Messiah. Isaiah wrote, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus tells John by quoting this scripture from Isaiah, to John, hey, look around you, right? See all the things that I have done. You've seen the blind open their eyes. You've seen the deaf become to hear. You've seen people raised from the dead. You've seen these truths, John, so why are you doubting? Jesus is saying, though, that his kingdom will not come in the way it had been expected. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. And that's not what John expected. And this is where we find ourselves oftentimes, and it ends up being the root of our doubts, is that life in Christ as a follower of Jesus doesn't end up being everything that we thought it would be. But instead of condemning us for our doubting, Jesus reassures us when we doubt. And that's the somewhat crazy thing about this God that we follow. This type of honesty and doubt and questioning of what's going on doesn't cause Jesus to turn his back on us. In fact, Jesus tells us that he is near to the brokenhearted and a friend of the doubting. That's our God. That's the God that we serve. His love for us is infinitely greater than any faithlessness and doubting that we could have towards him. But here's the thing. In this, doubt isn't the same as unbelief. It's not that John didn't believe in him. He just had some doubts. In verses 18 through 19, Jesus makes the point that people rejected John for essentially being kind of this weird, judgy, locust-eating guy out in the wilderness. And then those same people are now rejecting Jesus for hanging out at parties and healing people and preaching about peace. What Jesus is pointing out here is that people's hearts were so hard and unbelief so rampant 
that they would see a prophet and the Messiah himself and reject both because their expectations weren't being met by either. And this is the unbelief and hardness of our hearts that Jesus begins explaining to the crowd around him, starting in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. He said, Woe to you, Chorazon! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes." But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. See, we're, we're far removed enough from the Bible that we don't understand what this actually means. See, Tyre and Sidon were these, these port cities in modern-day Lebanon, and they would have been familiar with all of the rampant unbelief and degenerate behavior that went on at those port cities. If you don't think of port cities now, think of like Pirates of the Caribbean. Those port cities are these havens of debauchery and sin, like drunkenness and gambling, prostitution, theft, and murder. And Jesus is saying that these havens of sin and degenerate behavior will have a lesser judgment on the day that he returns than the cities that Jesus had healed in. And all because those cities don't believe. Let's keep going. Verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, I would have, they would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. If the Jesus that you think you're following is this hippie Jesus, this should tell you otherwise, right? What he's saying here and letting these people know is that their unbelief is going to cause harsh judgment on the final day. This is the same Capernaum where Simon Peter and Andrew were from. The place where Jesus ministered and performed the most miracles out of anywhere else in the Bible was in Capernaum. And if the people thought Jesus was offensive before by comparing them to Tyre and Sidon, then imagine being in their shoes for a second, being compared to Sodom. Sodom in the Old Testament, one of the cities that was the most degenerate, the most profane, the most full of sin and wickedness. Jesus is telling them that Sodom, that place, will have a far lesser judgment than Capernaum would. So the question is, how could these places have experienced Christ so profoundly and yet be told that they were experiencing even more judgment than the most sinful places on earth? It's because experiencing blessing doesn't actually ensure our belief. And this is incredibly sad when you think about it. These people experienced the first-hand blessing and goodness of God right in their city and decided not to believe anyway. How many of us in here would, would say that what I need to believe in Jesus is for him to show me an actual miracle? Show me something, Jesus. 
right here, he's telling us, I could do that. You're not going to believe anyway. Experiencing these blessings does not ensure that we're going to actually believe in Jesus. And instead of recognizing Jesus as Savior and Lord, they chose to treat him as a clown at a party performing parlor tricks. That's who they viewed Jesus to be. They were amazed by Jesus, and most of them even admired him, but they did not see him as Lord and repent of their sin. But here's the thing about that, and the sinister thing that we probably find ourselves in more often than not when we experience the blessings of Jesus and don't recognize them for what they are. The most disheartening thing in all of this, is they didn't actually outright, at that time, reject Jesus. They celebrated the miracles he performed. Capernaum was stunned by Jesus, but yet they didn't believe. Jesus' heart, we see here, is broken over their unbelief. He doesn't want to condemn them. But as a righteous and holy God, he absolutely must. Peter in 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we look at the state of our world in all of the sickness and famine and war and pain and brokenness all around us. And we, as the church, as the body of Christ, rightly look at that and say, come, Lord Jesus. Come back. Come and make all of this right. But the slowness in his return is in some ways an act of mercy and patience toward us. Not only is Jesus rightly understood as the Messiah and as a righteous judge, but he is also a merciful and gracious Lord. Verse 28 through the end of the chapter, Christ says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is wrapping up this teaching to the people there and then to us this morning by reminding us of his deep love for us. Not that any of us should perish and spend eternity separated from him. But is it dying to ourselves and picking up our cross and following him, believing in him for our righteousness? What he is describing as an easy and light burden compared to the weight of our sin, it's in that that we actually find rest. It's counter to what we think rest should be. Rest shouldn't be picking up a a yoke and putting it on myself, right? It's kind of weird. No, he's saying the weight 
of the burden of following me, being my disciple, of following me, believing in me, even though you still see grief and pain and heartache and hardship, that's much easier, much easier than staying in the death of your sin. It's in this that we see Jesus gives rest to the weary and to the doubting. Rather than calling us to a greater moral effort or good works in order to earn God's favor and righteousness, Jesus simply says, come to me. In learning from Jesus what it means to be his disciple, he offers us rest from our striving and attempts to make ourselves worthy before God. Christ is saying in all of our moralistic strivings, in the doubts of his goodness and the reality of his victory over sin and of death, in our pursuit of glory and honor and fame and purpose, in the day in and day out struggles of our lives, of our marriages, of our parenting, of our singleness, of our loneliness and isolation, what Jesus is saying, he isn't saying, come hang out with me saying, come to me, and I will give you rest. He is the source of it. And it's in him that we can find relief from the pain of trying better and trying to do more in order to earn God's favor. It's in him that we can lay down our struggles of our marriages and parenting failures. It's in him the toil of our jobs or the trying to find a job that comes less burdensome. In him, we find a cure for our isolation and loneliness because he says he is near to the brokenhearted. He is a friend of the lonely. You won't find us often quoting this in church, not because it's not bad devotional, but it's a bad translation of Scripture. But I found it to be really profound the way Eugene Peterson puts this in his devotional paraphrase in the message. He put, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So if you'll remember when we started out this morning, and I told you we wouldn't be here long. When we started out this morning, we asked the question, in our doubting, how do we cultivate faith in an age begging for us to follow anything but Christ? So we'll get real practical. If you haven't been taking notes up until this point, begin taking notes now. We're going to get real practical of what it means to follow Jesus in this. First is to doubt your doubts. This might seem like a kind of cliche thing to say, but it is true. Our culture over and over and over again is telling us to doubt our beliefs and believe our doubts. And there is a time and place for that, like we've talked about already. But we also need to doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs. 
If part of you says, I don't know if I believe in this, and the other part of you says, I know for sure that I believe this, why would we give in and believe the side of us that's causing us to doubt it? Again, the cultural messaging is doubt is sophisticated, that skepticism is for the educated and open-minded, the tolerant and the cultured. Faith is for the simpleton, the uneducated and the uncivilized person. That's the, the cultural bias that we live in against faith. And if you follow the basis of this to its logical conclusion, the end of that road only leads to death, quite literally to death. Secular thinking tells you that you are an accident, a, a glorious accident. You are a glorious accident, but an accident all the same. And if you're lucky enough to be born in the right time, the right place, and have the right family, the right ethnicity, the right privilege and status to enjoy the world the way that you want to, then you're going to have a good life. But even then, you have no meaning or purpose. Life is just simply nothing more than what you make of it. Morality and spirituality, all of it is nothing more than socially conditioned rules. And so you just get what you can, and then you die. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem like the path to life to me. Even on an objective level, what is good or noble about living a life like that? That path only leads to despair and meaninglessness and a loss of hope and joy. So in an age and culture that is telling you to doubt your beliefs, choose instead to doubt your doubts. Number two is to grow in your faith. This is probably the simplest one of these uh, lists, but be regularly engaging with God through reading Scripture and through prayer. Regularly engage in life here at Mosaic. Join a small group, serve others, give regularly of your time and your treasures. This is how you grow in your faith. Here's the reality, is that Christ saves us on an individual level, but he sustains us and guides us and encourages us as a body of believers. On a Sunday or even just a meal with your small group, it's a huge aid to your faith. You know, we gather together with other believers and it reminds us that when we, what we believe and who Christ is, is real and true and worth celebrating. That's why you're here week after week. That's why I'm here week after week. I mean, as one of the pastors of the church, I kind of have to be here week after week, right? But I enjoy being here week after week because I'll be quite honest, most of my weeks are hard and laborious and I don't enjoy them very much. But when I come here on a Sunday morning, it's a reminder to me that Christ is good. Because I'm gathered with my brothers and sisters celebrating and worshiping the God who has saved us. Number three, stay emotionally healthy. The truth is that we all are holistic beings. We are mind, body, soul, flesh, and bone. 
We as people get tired and worn out. We, we get hungry and we lack sleep and then we get grouchy and irritable. And we are not just physical beings, we are emotional as well. And this is something the idea of like stoicism, that philosophy ignores, where you just are the material. You just need to be disciplined. That's it. There's good things about discipline. But it ignores your emotional side. It ignores that you are a holistic person. Sometimes our doubts aren't crises of faith at all, but just like Elijah in 1 Kings, our anxiety and doubts might just be overcome by having something to eat and a lie down. Canadian pastor D.A. Carson says this, Doubt may be fostered by sleep deprivation. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is to get a good night's sleep. Not to pray all night, but to sleep. So if I, I can be honest, in the moments where I've probably experienced the most doubt, where I've experienced these times where I'm, I'm just not sure if what I believe, if God's actually really good, if I doubt a calling in my life, or I doubt whether or not Christ will pull me out of a certain situation, much of that has not been caused by a crisis or something that I've experienced external of me, but it's because I need some sleep, or I'm not drinking enough water, Right? Or I'm, you know, 36 years old and eating like a college student. And in our doubts, we find this opportunity to practice what Jesus promised and just to rest in him. The Christian life is not about trying better and doing more. Instead, the message of Christ, the message of the whole gospel is one of rest where we can put down our burdens and shame and learn a new way of living from the friend of the sinner and of the doubting. Where in the middle of our sins and failures, we can turn to the cross and the empty tomb and rest in the assurance of our salvation. And we can know that nothing, not angels or demons or political rulers, not even our own doubts and sins can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So this morning, the, the call is pretty simple. Come to the one who is gentle and humble in heart and find rest for your weary and doubting soul. And when you do come to Christ, rejoice forever with him and rest with him. Because the rest that he offers doesn't end, but is instead lasting and eternal. And that's where we see that Jesus is the only rest for the weary and the doubting. Let's pray.